And you're also the social leader of the group, so. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, it's great to be with you all again, and it's great to celebrate our God together and uh, to grow in our understanding of our need for him and his beauty. And hopefully we'll do so today. Um, typically, we start with the reading of uh, the main scripture. Um, but today, uh, I need to do a lot of background work to really get to what we're talking about in our main scripture. So uh, we're going to talk a bit about the life of Jacob and the life of his ancestors, and then we'll get into our scripture reading in a little bit. So if you will uh, just uh, bear with me as we do so. So um, I've actually talked about some of these people uh, over the last two years or so in different times. So some of these stories and names will be familiar to you if you were around. If not, I will fill you in a bit. But we're talking about Jacob, and there's this really weird story we're going to read here in a moment where um, Jacob is alone at night, and someone comes, a stranger comes, and starts wrestling with him. And Jacob wrestles back. Um, and we find out later in the story that uh, it was God who was the stranger, which is really strange. Um, I bet none of you uh, really thought God was down to just show up and wrestle with people throughout the night. Um, but it is something that Jacob needed. And uh, to know uh, why, uh, we need to know a bit of the story of Jacob and some of his ancestors. So it starts with Abraham. Abraham is told by God, hey, this world is hurting. It's broken. It's, uh, it's in need of help. Uh, it's a mess. And I'm going to send a Messiah. And he's going to be one of your descendants. And therefore, Abraham, and, uh, he tells Abraham, in every generation that comes from your family going forward, I'm going to pick one chosen child. And he will be the one to which that next generation will come and I will pick another child from that and that next generation will come and ultimately each one of these messianic children will lead to the messianic child to the savior the one I'm going to heal this broken world uh, by um, and so you're going to bear a messianic line and it's going to come from your children now Abraham was uh, not uh, terribly young at this point but he wasn't uh, overly old but uh, it didn't happen right away and his wife was also around his age, and they were uh, heading into their older age, and they did not have a child yet, and it's going and going and going, and um, their doubts are, are developing, and they're kind of protecting their heart and not trying not to hope too much, and um, there comes a time where his wife Sarah says, uh, you should take one of my servants and conceive a child with her, and Abraham does, um, and God comes back, and he says, no, that's not how this is going to work, and um, Long uh, story short, ultimately, there is a child that comes, and Isaac, uh, the blessing uh, to uh, Abraham and Sarah, arrives, the messianic child arrives. Um, but it started with uh, doubt, and it started with, uh, therefore, uh, when the doubt creeped in, there was this, this, this uh, decision to, we're going to do this apart from God. We have this calling by God, and we're going to do it outside of how God told us to do it. We're going to do it independent of that. And so um, you have uh, this uh, uh, desire to fulfill what God has called them to. They have uh, um, so ingrained their, their life in what God has told them will do, uh, he will do, and uh, it has become such an idol to them, such a priority to them, that they won't trust God to do it, so they need to do it on their own. 
Um, this leads later on to family strife as the um, servant uh, that Abraham conceived with and the child caused his wife great stress. She ultimately has them uh, banished from the area and uh, Abraham uh, um, does those share with Isaac that he is the messianic child, that he will be, in fact, the next part of this generation to produce another messianic child. And so Isaac, hey, this is a good deal, right? This is pretty, this is a pretty cool thing to be a part of. Um, and uh, at one point, Abraham sends out a servant to find Isaac a wife. And he does this really strange thing. There's a lot of strange things in this story. Uh, but he tells this servant who's going out to find Abraham a wife. He says, swear on my thigh or my under thigh. So he says, put your hand under my thigh and, and swear that you're going to take this seriously. That this is going, you're, this, you have to realize that this is God's, calling. This is God's purpose for my family. This is my family's lineage at stake. Take it seriously. Swear on my thigh. Um, this happens a couple of times in the New Testament, or I mean the Old Testament. It, it seems as if the thigh is sort of a euphemistic reference to the organ of reproduction. Um, and uh, Abraham is just saying, hey, this, this is my lineage. Take it seriously. Swear on the uh, under my thigh. Um, and so the uh, servant does uh, his uh, duty. He heads out, and uh, um, ultimately uh, Rebecca is found for Isaac. And Rebecca and Isaac uh, marry, and uh, they conceive uh, two uh, boys, two twins, Esau and Jacob. And uh, during the pregnancy, Esau and Jacob are warring against each other or moving around quite a bit in the stomach, so much so that Rebecca is like, hey, man, this is kind of strange. Um, I don't know what's going on here. And so she seeks out a prophet to try to understand it. Um, but later uh, they're born and uh, Esau uh, comes out as the uh, first child and another strange thing. Um, as Esau is being, uh, is coming out, um, the second son, Jacob's hand is holding on to the heel of Jacob or of Esau. Almost as if Jacob is trying to pull Esau behind him or pull himself in front of Esau, there's this continual struggle. Um, so Esau, the older of the two, uh, typically in this uh, culture would be the chosen child, the chosen son, the first son. What that means is, uh, so um, in order for families to keep their standing within their community, they tended to not divide up their wealth too much. Um, and so most of one's wealth would go to the first son. Doesn't mean none of it would give to any of the other siblings, but most of it would go to the first son because the accumulation of wealth was a lot of ways in how um, standing was found in that culture. And so you don't want to divide it too, um, uh, uh, too equally because then you will have split it and you will lower your standing within that culture, within that um, area. And so, uh, but a prophet from God comes along to... Um, Isaac and Rebecca, and he tells them that the younger one is actually the chosen one, is the messianic uh, child, and the older one will end up serving the younger one. So typically, you know that the older one would have most of the um, wealth and most of the ways to which wealth would be gained, and the siblings would work under the older uh, one. But uh, the prophet comes along and says, no, the um, older one will serve the younger one. Now, uh, Esau had a, a personality that was more similar to his father 
tended to be more uh, manly in some of the bad ways that we would think of it. Um, and uh, Jacob tended to take on more of the personality of his mother. Um, and so, you know, the, the father uh, ended up, Jacob uh, ends up uh, being uh, pretty, uh, or I mean, Isaac ends up being closer to Esau, and uh, the mom ends up being closer to Jacob. This happens. I mean, it's not, it's natural. It's not like when this happens all the time, it's, it's overly bad. But for Isaac's case, it actually led him to love Esau more than he loved Jacob. He picked a favorite. So he decides that, you know what, I, yeah, this prophet came along and said that Jacob is the one, but I happen to love Isaac, and I'm not as fond as Jacob. I'm fond of Jacob, so I'm going to actually give my firstborn uh, the estate. I'm going to give my firstborn the birthright. So you have uh, Jacob now who doesn't have the love of his father, doesn't have the acceptance of his father, is feeling like his father's about to steal from him what is rightfully his. his he is the one to be the messianic child. He is the one uh, that is the chosen one in that generation. And so Jacob decides, I'm going to take it into my own hands. I'm going to get from my father what I want from him. Uh, so Jacob dresses up as his brother Esau, and he, uh, as, as Isaac has gotten old, he is blinded, he can't see. And Jacob dresses up as Esau, and he comes in to the father, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm here, uh, and I want my blessing. And Isaac, uh, you know, he is blind, but, you know, you could still kind of tell usually uh, the difference between your children um, if you've known them for a long time. But as he, because he dressed up with him, he kind of smelled like him, kind of could be confusing for him. And he is kind of confused. And he does actually say that, yeah, you will have my blessing. And so Jacob, I think, got two things that he desperately wanted. Um, one, the birthright, uh, the prophecy fulfilled. But also, this really could have been the first time that he felt his father or heard his father say anything of love to him or anything of acceptance to him. Um, he had been neglected by his father. He hadn't felt loved by the father. Um, and his father had picked another one as a favorite over him. And uh, I think that really hurt Jacob as it would hurt almost anybody. Um, but Jacob, he leaves uh, and Esau comes in because uh, he knows his father had decided this is when he was going to pass on the birthright as he was aging. And Esau comes in and says, I'm here. And uh, Esau was like, wait, if, if you're here now, who was here? And they both realized it was Jacob. And Jacob had tricked the father. And uh, the, uh, Esau says, all right, whatever, who cares? Just give it to me. Like I said, he tricked you. It was terrible. It was awful. He shouldn't have done it. But just hand me the birthright. I mean, what's the big deal? No, nothing has happened really yet. But Esau, um, it, we're told in Genesis 27, says, uh, Isaac, or, um, Esau said to the father, what's the matter, father? And Isaac said, if you are Esau, who did I just give the blessing to? And they both knew it was Jacob. And Esau says, later it says, I've blessed your brother, yeah, and he shall be blessed. But before that, it said Isaac had trembled violently when uh, he realized what had happened. 
And I think Isaac was real. He was coming into the direct revelation of God at this point. God had told him it's going to be the younger brother. Esau said, no, I'm going to give it to the older brother. The younger brother tricks him. Esau realizes he was tricked, and he realizes that, you know, I'm, I can want what I want. But God has a plan. God has made a prophecy and is going to come about. And he was confronted with this reality, and I think he's shaken. He's realizing his sin a bit. He's realizing the power of God a bit. And he says, nope, it's going to stay with the younger brother. It's going to stay with Jacob. Esau decides, okay, once my father's dead, I'm going to kill my brother. Once dad dies, Jacob is dead. I'm going to get him, and I'm going to get my birthright. Uh, Esau heard the prophet, knew the prophecy, but Esau had said, my life is tied to the birthright. And so he couldn't trust God either, and he takes it into his own hands. He's going to kill his brother. Isaac couldn't trust the prophecy. He took it into his own hands, was going to give it to the older brother. Jacob couldn't trust that God would give him his birthright, and he takes it into his own hands and tricks his father. Jacob flees. I mean, this wasn't a particularly well-sought-out plan. <laughs> I mean, people are going to figure this out. You wore your brother's clothes. What are you, what are you going to do? And then, especially, what are you going to do when the brother says, I'm going to kill you? And he would have somewhat of a case to do so. Um, so Esau flees. He ends up at his uncle's estate. His uncle has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Uh, Rachel is uh, considered very beautiful, and Leah, not so much. Um, she has a, an eye issue that makes her unsightly in some way, um, undesirable in some way. Jacob is immediately taken by Rachel's beauty. And he works for a while. He does really well. He's trying to prove himself to the, Rachel's father, to his uncle. And uh, after a time, he goes to his uncle and he says, I want to marry Rachel. And his uncle says, okay, uh, but are you not to give me anything in return for my daughter? So he says, you work seven years for me, and then I will give you Rachel. He works seven years. It tells us the Bible, in the Bible, it tells us it seemed like nothing because of how deeply uh, in love or lust he was with Rachel. And he's so committed to it that it barely seemed like any time. Uh, wedding night comes, and uh, the uncle tricks him, and he marries him off to uh, Leah instead. Come morning, he wakes up, and Leah is next to him, and he is upset. And he goes to the uncle, and he says, hey, you were to marry. Our agreement was, Rachel, you gave me Leah. Um, and the uncle says, okay, well, work another seven years, and I will give you Rachel. Jacob, uh, so... Jacob has been completely separated from his father. He never knew his, the, the love of his father, separated from his family, seeking meaning, seeking also a way to fulfill the prophecy. He has to have, he has to have kids, right? He is the chosen messianic child bearer of that generation. Um, and he sees this beautiful woman and is willing to go to incredible lengths, 14 years of labor, uh, to marry her. Uh, Leah uh, 
has a father who knows that she's not particularly attractive or un- thinks she's not particularly attract- un- un- particularly attractive, feels neglected, feels unloved. Um, she has to be, someone has to be tricked in order to take her as their wife. Um, she feels similar to probably Jake, how Jacob felt when his father uh, didn't love him and didn't see him as valuable and as beautiful. Um, she decides, hey, there's his prophecy, and I can help my husband fulfill it. And she becomes committed to the fact that I will bear him children, and I will find his love and his acceptance through that. Um, it takes some time, and she finally gets to the point of, okay, this is not how I'm going to find real love and real acceptance. Uh, she bears him a few children, and uh, she finally names one uh, after just finding her rest in God instead of uh, seeking to find her love and acceptance in her husband's arms. Rachel, the, the beautiful one, the chosen one in Jacob's eyes, struggles with bearing children, can't give her husband children for a long time. And uh, this is a deep issue for her. her she is the better sister. She's the, she's the chosen sister, the beautiful sister. She wants to be the one that is uh, part of the lineage of the chosen generation. She wants to be the one who her husband loves more than her sister. To the point of uh, when she bears her first child, she says, I had wrestled with my sister and won. Through giving birth, uh, she feels like she has won. She's found meaning. She's found peace. She's found joy. Um, Of course, that doesn't actually work. Um, But you see, just again, through these stories, people needing to find meaning in life and joy apart from God because they can't trust him with it. Jacob prospers for a long while uh, in his uncle Laban's uh, estate. Um, But there comes a time where he thinks that his uncle, he's growing out of favor in his uncle's eyes. He's also feeling uh, worn down, I think, through, by the family issues of the past and, um, and God pursuing and consistently reminding him of, hey, there's a promised land for you that I promised you, a promised birthright for you. And Jacob decides he's going to gather the family and he's going to head back and he's going to uh, allow him to be confronted by Esau. He's going to, to go to his brother and, and deal with the issue. So he heads back home. And uh, he heads back to Esau. Um, so we're going to read here our, our scripture in a second. Uh, so if you turn to Genesis 32, that's where we're going to read from. Genesis 32, Genesis, first book of the Bible. You so you start at your left, find Genesis, go to 32. Before we get into our main scripture, uh, a bit of what's going on. Jacob is afraid of what's going to happen with Esau. So we learn that uh, he sends some servants in, uh, in verse 4. He says, he instructs them, thus you say to my Lord Esau, thus say your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkey, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Uh, and then he goes on and it says that... Uh, uh, he's going to put gifts together for, for his brother, and he's going to send them in different groups. And so he sends them, uh, you see in verse 13, he said, he stayed the night there from what he had with him. He took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 
ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels, their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. And he sent them in groups in Esau. He's trying to appease them, Esau with his gifts. It says uh, in verse 18, it says, Then you shall say, uh, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are presents sent uh, to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. In verse 20, you see it says, For you thought I may appease him with the presence that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the presence passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in camp. We also see at the beginning of 22 where we're going to pick up and we're going to read through uh, the end of uh, the chapter. My heading starts with Jacob wrestles with God. And it says, uh, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Look, or then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, and said, For I have seen God's face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose, uh, rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, this is uh, another uh, strange story that you give us, uh, but we know that you give us these stories because uh, there are things that we need to know about ourselves and things we need to know about you. And so today I pray that you will help us to know what you wanted for us in your creation, how we messed it up, and what that caused as far as our relationship with you what it takes to be corrected and to be, to be brought back in line with your desire for us. Help us to see you in a way that reveals how much we need you, how beautiful and great you are, what it means to win in life, what it means to win in an encounter with you. Help us to know how uh, we can know that we've encountered you and be secure in the fact that that encounter led us to you and your grace and your mercy and your peace. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we will pick up here. Um, so I want to, uh, three points that I think um, we can get out of this story. Um, that being... Uh, the first point, uh, we were made to be in a dance with God. And by that, I mean, we were made 
to be the dance partner of God, and he is our leader. And so our life is coordinated and led by him, and we follow. We allow him to guide us in this dance, this beautiful life. We didn't trust God with it. As Rebecca and Sarah and Isaac and Abraham and Jacob and Esau and Leah and Rachel didn't. And so uh, we saw independence from him. We started to wrestle our way from him. We tried to get away from him. We struggled to be uh, independent of God. And so we're made to dance, but our distrust led us to fight for independence. Third, uh, we need to actually in turn fight for dependence. We need to wrestle for dependence because of that. And fourth, so we can be back in the dance uh, as we were intended to be, back dependent upon God as we were intended. So made uh, to dance. Uh, we were made to find our love, our acceptance in the love and the acceptance of our Father. And we were made to be loved by God, accepted by God, chosen by God to be his people, to be those who celebrate in his life, who live abundantly through his selflessness, through his grace and his mercy, through his love and his acceptance, through his abundance of joy. That is life in the Trinity. We were made to follow selflessly, to give ourselves to him in this dance. We were made to have our life through that. And so we saw in the garden, every need was taken care of in the garden uh, before the fall. But uh, there was a distrust that came through the serpent tricking Adam and Eve or um, tempting Adam and Eve and them giving over to that. And we saw this break, and so they were separated from the garden. And we see it through the lives that I was just talking about. We did not trust God with uh, that fact, that God is the source of life. And so we try to fight for independence from him, and we try to find it in other ways. And what does it lead to? It leads to brokenness, as we saw in the life of this family. It leads to neglect. It leads to people feeling unloved. It leads to people being uh, loved for the wrong reasons. It leads to people being taken advantage of, actually, not loved, uh, because the wrong motives were at play. And because one looked good or because one worked, one could do good work in my fields and in my estate, or because one is more like me than the other, and I find uh, a little more happiness in that relationship than the other. Um, there, just a, a need for meaning, a need... Uh, for my life to be something. And therefore, God gave me this calling of bearing a child. And I can't trust God with it at any more at this point, so I'm going to do it apart from God. This is the reality of, of life as sinners. We're in a constant fight of independence, trying to separate ourselves from God. And it leads to strife, it leads to pain, and it leads to devastation, and it leads to people being hurt. Some of you, I don't know the families you came from, some, I know some of you came from pretty broken families. And to hear a mom or a father say, I love you, would be an amazing experience. 
because you haven't had that experience. Some of you have had parents who tell you you love you all the time. But you know that to a certain extent, their love for you is tied to a need for you to be a certain thing or to live a certain way or to have a specific life because they've made an idol of you being successful in some way. Maybe because they didn't or maybe just because they see it as I, in order for me to be the good parent, I'm supposed to be my parent needs to have done the, or my child has to accomplish this or that. And so, yeah, they tell you they love you all the time, but their love is very much dependent upon what your life looks like. And so they're constantly nagging you about you need to do this and you need to do that. Marriage, kids, career, whatever. Some of you may feel just a deep need to find meaning in life, to find purpose in life, that something will be, come from my life that will have lasting impact in a good way. And to this point, you haven't figured out how. You don't know how it's going to happen. Or maybe some of you have figured out this will be the way and it didn't work. You know the devastation of some of these people. Jacob uh, knew it well. He had been taken advantage of a couple of times. He had been neglected a couple of times. His, uh, his wives at different times only cared about him because they cared to be the part of the birthright. Broken, neglected, unloved. Um... Before we move on to the next two, let's, let's dive into our scripture. So here is Jacob, finally all alone. He had spent so long trying to find life through uh, the family. First, uh, just his desire for the beautiful sister tricked into the non-beautiful sister. So he labors some more. He's, doing fairly well, has a big family at this point, but he hasn't reached to the point where he was called to be. And so he's fearful of what Esau's going to do, so he tried to appease him with gifts, as we saw. He split, he split his encampment into two um, different uh, groups. That way, if Esau attacks one, the other one can get away. Finally, he is with his closest family, and he sends them uh, in front leaving himself alone, that way if it goes bad, it's only him. The birthright is protected still, perhaps. And Jacob is absolutely alone, ready for this final confrontation, this final battle with his brother. And it says that this man, this stranger comes along and they wrestled for a long time. Uh, the uh, Hebrew scholar Robert Alter uh, says this about this. It says, the image of wrestling has been implicit throughout the Jacob's story, and is grabbing Esau's heel as he emerges from the womb, and is striving with Esau for birthright and blessing, and in his multiple contentions with Laban, now in this uh, culminating moment of his life story, the characterization, characterizing image of wrestling is made explicit and literal. We are people wrestling in this deep struggle to find life, to find meaning, to find acceptance, to find love. And this is a reality of who we are. And in Jacob's story here, we see it 
literally realized. Uh, three things about wrestling that I want us to understand, um, or any type of combative sport. It takes focus, right? If you were wrestling somebody, if you're in the middle of a match, um, and you're out there on the mats, and he's trying to pin you, he's trying to beat you, or she's trying to pin you or trying to beat you, if you start thinking of your favorite TV show and how funny it was last night, you're not going to do particularly well. Like your, your task at that point demands your full focus. You can't be divided in what you're thinking about because you will lose. Wrestling is a matter of contradiction. Dancing is, a better, uh, is about coordination and submission you know, giving yourself to each other, coordinating with each other, moving with each other. Wrestling is trying to contradict what your opponent is trying to do. They're trying to move in a certain way to win. You're trying to combat the way they're moving to win. Sometimes, yes, in fact, you might use their movement to your advantage. But still, the goal is to take what they're doing to contradict it and make it to your advantage, to make it about your, to make it so you can win. So wrestling is by it's nature, a battle of contradiction. Lastly, it causes pain and agony, right? Wrestling is a very strenuous sport. It takes a lot of power. You're constantly being pushed and pulled and dragged and, and, and moved by someone who has strength, and you're trying to you're push and pull and drag and move back. It takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of endurance, and it, it causes pain, sometimes agony. And... Uh, the strange thing about this story is we know from the end of it that it was God, but we have a stalemate almost the whole time. So in the morning, it says, uh, when the man, as we know God, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So we have this battle. We have this intense focus of Jacob. It causes uh, contradiction and it causes pain. But it's interesting because at the beginning, I think we can, re uh, we can faithfully and truthfully say that the battle started with Jacob wanting to be free from the stranger, but it ends with Jacob holding on and wanting blessing from the stranger. It starts with wanting independence, and it ends with a desire for dependence. But in the, towards the end of that, we have this moment where it says, he touched his hip pocket. So for hours, as far as we can tell, this battle, this stalemate was going on, and it doesn't say that at this time he yanked really hard on his leg or he hit him with something or he may, did some kind of move that yanked his hip socket, that retched it. It says he touched it. A simple touch. A pat, a flick, I don't know what, a touch. And his hip socket is wrenched. And we know from the story that it led to a limp for the rest of his life. Then he also is confronted with this. Let me go, for the day has broken. So Jacob had wrestled with his stranger and then experienced this stranger's real power at the end of the, of the struggle. 
a supernatural power. And then the stranger says, let me go for it's daybreak. So Israel knew um, that, as Chris had talked about in some of the previous sermons, to, to come into the presence of a holy God when you're unholy can lead to death, can lead to pain, can lead to destruction. And so there's this poem, there's a point um, where Moses says to God, you know, I want to see your face. And God says, you couldn't, it'll kill you, but you can see the back. I'll hide you in a cliff and you can see a bit of it going by. Uh, we can't be in the presence of a holy God as unholy people and survive. Our unjustness, when confronted by real justice, leads to destruction. And so God is saying to Jacob, you need to let me go because you do not want to continue to fight me in the daybreak when the light rises. You can't see me in my fullness. Jacob holds on and he says, I'm going to hold on until I bless you. Until you bless me. I, I don't know why Jacob thinks there will be some grace or some mercy in, in this regard. But Jacob had come to the realization of the power of God, the weakness of himself, the need for him to be dependent upon God, not independent of God. And he says, I'm not giving up this opportunity. There's something about you I can trust, and I'm going to hold on until you bless me. So he experiences weakness and power. A God who wrestled with him in weakness allowed him to, to stay in the fight. But a, the power of God who with a simple touch can wretch his hip, separate his, his thigh from his hip. He knew, saw the meaning of daybreak and the holiness of God. But somehow he saw the grace and the mercy of God. And he has this great encounter with God. That's a deep struggle that causes pain. So I want to talk a bit about what does it mean to encounter God? The first thing is it's personal. We at Gateway are a church that believes in community deeply, that believes in the need for a church to be deeply invested and involved in each other's lives. But the purpose of that is personal transformation. It's not just to be with people. Our community is built to move each other in a personal way to God. Some of you might have gone to church growing up, and you had great times with your family, and your family loved you in certain ways and affirmed you and, and treated you well, and there was this sort of kind of tie between that and church. And so... You loved going to church at a time, and you went away to school, and it lost that connection. You lost that connection to family. You lost that connection uh, to that, those good times, and church kind of lost its meaning to you. Uh, some of you might have uh, maybe attached to a youth group uh, in high school or junior high. That was really fun, and you did a lot of crazy, cool, fun, strange games that you would never do now, but it was great then. Um, you had great friends. And you loved going to youth group. And then you went away to college, and that wasn't as, didn't have the same impact on you. And, and church, its importance went away. God's importance went away. Uh, I have a, a friend from high school who ha is not a Christian and never had much of a desire to know God. I've talked a couple of times with him 
There's no real strong desire yet for God. Hopefully that changes. Pray for my friend Andy. He has a girlfriend right now who um, has a, a daughter from a different relationship. And she started going to church because she wanted her daughter to grow up with a certain ethic, a certain morality. And she thought the church was a good place to teach it. Some of you might have connected to the church out of a similar desire. And then that desire changed and your commitment to God and church changed. Some of you might have showed up here just because church has been always a part of your family, your culture, your your life. And you come here and you... Um, it's you, you get to partake in this joint thing called worship, which even if you don't grasp what you're doing, it's still pretty awe-inspiring and moving to just be a part of a group of people who are singing together, who are lost in the moment. It's why we love to go to concerts. By we, I mean you all. Um, but it's why we love, love to go to concerts and things like that. It's why we love to go to baseball games, just to be a, with people to be lost in the bigness of this moment. Some of you might come and you just really love to, to, to listen and be a part of the beautiful gifts that Jeremy and Rose and Kirsten and Aubrey and Daniel and Jameson and Christina and the others I'm, I'm not remembering right now. Um, just love to, to hear their, their beautiful gifts being played and, and participate in it. But when you leave here, you have no desire for worship, no desire to, to spend time singing to God. Because uh, it's always been a, been a cultural thing. Religion has been has overshadowed a personal relationship with God. It's always been uh, a different goal than God himself. But this story tells us that our God is a deeply personal God. And to encounter God, you have to encounter him in a personal way. It always involves a struggle. It's, if God exists, if there is a reason you were made, the most important thing you could ever do in your life is figure out who he is and what that meaning is. If God is good, the second most important thing you can do is you, could, you need to figure out what is good. In what ways is he good? In what ways do I need to be good? What is good? If God claims to be the source of life, the source of joy, the source of happiness, of rest, of peace, you also, the, what could you do that's more important than figuring out, okay, how do I get this life? What is required of me? What, is, what about me needs to change? What about me needs to be different? Well, what about me um, needs to be killed, needs to end. If there is a God, is it possible that his views on what is good, what leads to life might be different than yours? Certainly. And if that is the case, the only way to get to that point of knowing those things is to allow yourself to be confronted by God. To allow yourself to be contradicted by God. To submit yourself to God in a way that says, I need to know you. This life is not about me. Me knowing you is not about me. 
If you have a vision of God in which in your mind you say, this is the God I can accept and this is the God I won't accept. And therefore, I'm just going to reject anything that um, is not like this. You're really the God in this scenario. And this other thing you call God is just something you use to get peace or joy or happiness that will fail you. So I, I, I loved baseball growing up. Baseball was my, my first true love. Still to this day, a bigger love than it should be in my life. Um, but playing baseball was how I decided I'm going to find meaning and I'm going to find joy in this life. I'm going to be really successful at this. People are going to like me because of it. I'm going to be famous. I'm going to make money. Um, which were secondary issues. I just loved baseball, and I wanted to play it forever and do it forever, and I wanted people to realize I was good at it. Um, so one of the things I knew going in was I need to get better constantly. And so I constantly went looking for coaches and people who can help me get better. Now, if I went to a coach... And I said to him, okay, here's what I do, and uh, just tell me it's great. I'm not really looking for a coach. I'm looking for somebody to affirm me. But if I go to a coach and I say, listen, here's what I'm doing. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Contradict me. Show me how I can get better. I'm looking for a coach. If you're going to God seeking only affirmation, you're not seeking God. You're seeking just affirmation. But if you go to God and struggle with him, Allow him to contradict you. Allow him to show you where you need him and how you need him. You're looking for a God. The last thing, so we have, um, it's personal. It's a struggle. It involves contradiction, allowing one to be contradicted. And winning comes through losing. It's, it, our story is that Jacob wrestled with God for that night. And that he, he strove with God and he won. Hosea, uh, speaking of uh, Jacob in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 14, says he strove with an angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. The angel being God. Um, one of my favorite uh, Christian theologians and commentators in his Genesis commentary, Derek Kidner writes this. It was defeat and victory in one. Hosea again illuminates it. He strove with the angel and prevailed. This is the language of strength. He wept and sought his favor, the language of weakness. After the maiming, the combativeness had turned to a dogged dependence, and Jacob emerged broken, named, and blessed. His limping would be a lasting proof of the reality of the struggle. It had been no dream. There was no sharp judgment in it. The new name would attest to his new standing. It was both a mark of grace, wiping out of an old reproach, and an accolade to live up to. The blessing this time was untarnished, both in the taking and in the giving. It was his own uncontrived and unmediated. See, Jacob had sought to find life in his own power. And through his own power, sought to separate himself from God. And he needed to experience the power of God and be reminded of the holiness of God and his unholiness. And so God comes and wrestles. God comes and struggles. 
And we come back to, I mentioned earlier that this, this swearing on of the under thigh that Abraham had, um, had his servant do when he said, go find me a wife. And here we see this retching of the hip that separates the thigh from, from the hip. So through, as I said, throughout the, the Old Testament, a few times we see this, this swearing on of the thigh, and it's a, a swearing on of one's lineage, one's family. A, com- a deep commitment to fulfill a task because I understand this is important because one's family is on the line. And we see that this God who, who wrestled in weakness, allowing Jacob to stay in the fight with a touch, takes the thigh, the symbol of, of family and, and lineage in this story, and, and wrenches it from the hip. Because the prophecy is chosen children will come and bear the lineage of a messianic son who is Christ. And Christ comes in weakness, comes in a way in which we can see him and not be destroyed, comes in a way in which we can berate and mock and beat and spit upon and nail to a cross and wretch his hip, separate him from his father so that we can know love and acceptance, so that we can know joy and purpose and meaning. What a, what a, a beautiful wrestling match. We have a God who will wrestle in weakness to get us to the point so we can know his strength and its fullness so we can know it's his strength is working for our good, leading us to real life, real joy, real meaning, real purpose, real acceptance, real love. We are told Jacob was blessed. I don't know how it was, but I, I can only picture God saying, I love you. I'm the father you always wanted, you always needed. I'm the father that will make sure you know I'm with you forever. Forever. And so I'm, I, I left this mark on your hip, and I gave you a new name, and I'm going through you to bring forth the Messiah as I promised. Ephesians four seventeen through 24 reads, um, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on this new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We need to hold on to God as Jacob did when he realized who he is and who God is. 
our old self is deeply flawed and holds a deep hold on our heart because of how much we struggled against God before we come to know Him. And so, yeah, if you have not come to know God in that way, today is the day to know Him. If you have, your struggle is not over. Hold on to God like Jacob did. Cling to the Spirit, as Ephesians told us. It it is a need for us to hold on to God. It's a need for us to bring what we think where life is found to God. It's a need for us to bring what we think leads us to joy to God. It's a need for us to go to God in a, in, with the things we think are good and with the things we think are bad. It's a need for us to go to God and just submit. Hold on. Grow in dependence. Job, uh, in, in his life, has come to great wealth in this world. And God wants to show people through Job that there is the possibility of real love in God, real joy in God and God alone. And so uh, God lets Satan take some things from Job, many things, devastating things. Um, and Job is devastated by this. And he grows in his devastation over time. And we see in Job... This constant prayer of contradiction. God, you're unjust. God, you did me wrong. God, I'm pure. Who can stand as pure in God's eyes? God, you're holy. Who can approach you in your holiness? He's constantly going back and forth with God, holding on to God in spite of his struggles and in spite of his doubts. And he comes to some of these most beautiful realizations about God. Job lived in, in, in a culture, in a community that had no idea of a life after death. And at one point he says, in the middle of this, this argument and this uh, prayer to God, won't you come after your creation even after it dies? Will you give life to your creation even after it dies? And that is what God wants. We fought against him and we died in ourselves. We lost joy and peace in life. But God says, even in your death, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to go to the cross for you. But if we want to live in that joy, we have to, again, we have to be focused on God. We have to struggle with God. We have to win through losing. We have to submit. And so I've actually, you know, through our growth group, we have been talking about different pains and different struggles in this world and what is just and what is not and what is good of God. And so I, I ended up uh, meeting with, uh, about, with four other uh, gateway people, and we've been going through Job. We get together um, for an hour and a half, two hours usually, and, and uh, we, we struggle. And by we, I mean... Uh, I force them to struggle a lot of times. Um, and so they sometimes leave our group um, frustrated, tired, drained. Um, there'll be times when we're like, okay, yeah, can we, let's just move forward. No, no, no we, need to, we need to wrestle with this. We need to find out who God is in this and who we are in this. And there, so I'll push them. 
And sometimes they'll say, this is how, what I think of God. And I'll say, okay, well, is that true? And are the assumptions you have about God that make you think that about God true? And so we'll go deeper into things than sometimes they want to go. But that's because we have to be focused on who God is. We have to take all of our thoughts about who God is back to God all the time. We have to take all of our thoughts about what is good back to God all the time. We have to take all of our thoughts about what leads to real life back to God all the time. We have to wrestle. We have to hold on or we will lose sight of God and we will become like the story of Jacob and his family. And we will leave people feeling neglected and used and hurt in our wake. But we too are left with a promise and a seal, as Jacob was. In John 14, verses 15 through 17 and 26 through 27, we'll close here after this. Um, Jesus had just had his uh, some deep times with the disciples. The Last Supper, he had told his disciples he was going to leave them. He told one of them was going to betray him and that Peter was going to deny him three times. And the disciples were like, what the heck is going on here? We followed you because we trusted you. We followed you because we thought you were the way to the um, new Israel, to the Israel out of captivity, to the Israel of freedom. And Jesus uh, tells them two things that are a promise. Uh, the first being heaven, which we're not going to get into, but um, I've talked about it before. Put your hope in heaven. It's a commandment by Jesus in the beginning of chapter 14. Read it when you get a chance. Um, but in John 14, he says this also. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because he neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Skipping to verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and bring you to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives it to do, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We were given the gift of the Holy Spirit who's going to come and teach us and remind us of what Christ did and what Christ taught. He's going to contradict us. He's going to lead us to conviction. He's going to lead us to understand our unholiness, our unrighteousness. He's going to lead us to remind us that Christ came not to just leave us in guilt and shame, but to take on our guilt and shame so that he can forgive us and lead us into the life he wants back into the dance, away from the wrestling. And so as we wrestle, we'll grow more into a, a better dance partner. And someday, because we're sealed with the Spirit forever, we will come to heaven and we will come to a place where we do only dancing. And we're surrounded by people who only dance with God, led by God. And we will know real joy and real peace and real meaning. Um, John Newton um, I have a, a slide. I don't, do you have? Can you pull it up? It's not Brian. Can you? Uh, sorry. 
going to close with this hymn from John Newton. He's a, a famous hymn writer. You probably might have heard his name. Um, if not, you can talk to him about who he is later. Um, but as soon as we get it. Yeah, it's up there. Okay, good. So he writes this. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love in every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love, constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling, trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy warm of to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. And these inward trials I employ, from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find in me, or find they all in me. Let's pray. Father, help us to find our all in you. Help us to know how much we have struggled and wrestled against you for independence so that we can find our all in this world apart from you. But help us to know how dependent we are for you, to find love and acceptance, to find a Father who truly loves us and accepts us, to find meaning, to find purpose, to find glory, to find joy in life, to find our all in you. Just to know in how much we've allowed you to contradict, to wrestle with us, how little we have done so how much we need to do so. Help us to know how much we need to cling to you always. Help us to know the, the ways in which today we need to cling to you. We need to allow you to contradict us, to wrestle with us. Help us to know the beauty of what it is to dance with you, the calling to which you gave us in creation. The work of the Son who came and was wretched apart from the Father, as Jacob's hip was wrenched from his hip bone, so that our sins can be forgiven, that our separation from the Father can be uh, broken and our restoration to him can be brought. Help us to know you and our all so that we can be a people of peace. Spirit, come. Help us to find comfort in your contradictions, in your convictions. As a reminder that you have sealed us for eternity, that we will forever be your dance partner. Help us to celebrate that peace and allow us to serve you and others in it. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can stand with us again. You are good, you are good, when there's nothing good in me. You are love, you are love, on display for all to see. You are light, you are light, when the darkness closes in. You are hope, you are hope, you have covered all my sin.
You are peace, you are peace, when my fear is crippling. You are true, you are true, even in my wandering. You are joy.